Welcome back to the Focus on Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Preston. And I'm Jason. Jason, we had a real treat today. Um, I'd say one of my favorite interviews. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was a real honor to talk to Stu Ellis, who is uh, well known in the central Illinois area and really to a lot of farmers across the U.S. You might have seen his face on different farm reports. You recognize his voice from a lot of radio work. I mean, he's coming up on 50 years (laughs) in his career in ag media. Yeah, he's definitely one of the main voices of ag, and it was really neat to hear his history and his experiences around, you know, Farm Progress Show. Uh, he really had a lot of neat stories, things that he was tied to that I had no idea. Yeah, we could have talked probably for hours. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. Well, rather than spilling the beans, let's go ahead and jump right into the interview with Stu. Welcome to the podcast, Stu. To kick things off, could you tell us a little bit about your background and what you're up to now? I was um, raised on a farm halfway between Taylorville and Willie Station. And uh, uh, Willie's is a little town. It's the only town that has a decimal point in its zip code, uh, 627.5. Uh, it's halfway between Taylorville and Stonington in Christian County. Mm-hmm. I'm just kidding about the decimal point. <laughs> But, uh, you had me going there. <laughs> I was uh, raised, uh, raised on a farm there. Dad, uh, um, we farmed uh, uh, a little over 800 acres and uh, uh, raised uh, corn, soybeans, uh, wheat, barley. Um, had, uh, oh, probably uh, 20 head of calves all the time that we fed. Uh, I raised about 2,000 head of hogs every year. So 4 o'clock in the morning, I was out with a flashlight in my mouth and putty knives in my hand cleaning out hog feeders every morning. Farms were a lot more diverse back then. Uh, they, yeah, they are. And um, I, was, uh, I was my dad's main weapon on weed control. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there, were, uh, uh, there were no herbicides. Mm-hmm. And I can remember the first time he brought uh, home a, a little a bottle. It's probably about a quart bottle. Of a brown, smelly liquid called Tordon, and uh, and he said, "This is what we're going to use to kill weeds." And and I didn't know whether we were supposed to go out and sprinkle it in the soybeans or or not. I had no idea. But he raised a certified soybean seed uh, for Illinois Crop Improvement, and uh, we never knew when the inspector was going to come around, and so. I had to make sure there were no weeds in any soybean field. And um, uh, so I had a a weed hook and a hoe, and (laughs) summertime, why, uh, that's, uh, I made sure that the the fields were clean. Yeah, I'm I'm a little older than Preston here. Preston didn't have quite that experience, but I remember a lot of bean walking in my younger days, and it's kind of funny you mentioned that before herbicides because my grandpa I walked beans for my grandpa and he would say we're not paying for any chemicals on this field we can go out there and pull those weeds you know and okay. he's paying his grandkids a dollar and a half an hour or whatever to do it and so I can definitely that's identify that's why you have so much character yeah right. missed out on this character building opportunities <laughs> well, the, 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 this little quart bottle I can remember him saying that it was $64 for this little quart bottle now I don't wow. have any idea what the dilution rate was and and how many, if it if it uh, treated more than ten acres or or what? But nevertheless, it was uh, it was something, and uh, 
was uh, more of a conversation than, than anything else. I don't remember how it how it did. I know I just continued walking beans for the rest of my childhood career. Do you remember if he sprayed it on? Because he probably wouldn't have had a sprayer. He wouldn't have been used to putting things over the top. Well, we had. I don't. Uh, uh, he 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 had a sprayer on the back okay. of a tractor. Okay. And there was a uh, uh, just a fifty-five gallon barrel uh, that was that was on the back of a sprayer, and and uh, it was before I was uh, old enough to drive the tractor. But uh, uh, that's uh, so that's that's how it would have been sprayed. Yeah. I don't remember whether the boom probably covered four rows because we had four row planter, mm -hmm. uh, John Deere 494A, yep. and uh, a uh, four-row combine, a uh, John Deere 55 model combine uh, that would uh, uh, harvest four rows of beans, and, and uh, I think we only had a two-row uh, corn head on it, but uh, that was... Uh, those were the days. <laughs> had a forty twenty though. Nice, I, <laughs> yeah, beautiful. I uh, we had uh, when I got out of school in the in the summer it was time to uh, raise. Uh, we were dad raised wheat, and uh, we would take uh, take the wheat into uh, Taylorville. Uh, there was an elevator in town that had a cleaner, and we would we would sell also certified wheat and certified barley, and so we would clean clean it all. They would get them to clean it, and they would bag it into into large burlap bags and put a little clip on it from Illinois Crop Improvement. And um, we had uh, he'd be in the he was the only one who ran the combine. Uh, had two uh, uh, new idea wagons, uh, as I remember, they held about sixty bushels each, and uh, so uh, I could uh, I could drive the the tractor and the two wagons in town and dump them at the elevator and. They would keep that wheat for us and clean it, and and uh, we'd pick them up later in the truck. But uh, there was a young lady on Park Street in Taylorville that was kind of nice looking, and every time I would go by her house, why, I'd make that forty twenty talk. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I do that was probably my enjoyment of, of driving that forty twenty. <laughs> Uh, those things sound pretty nice too. They, they really do. Yeah. <laughs> and a lot better than that old seventy. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing what those extra cylinders will do for you. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, that was uh, that was where I grew up. I wanted to farm, and uh, thought I was going to farm. Uh, was headed to, headed to college. Uh, Dad said uh, he was the smartest man alive. Smartest man in the world, maybe ever. Uh, he he said, uh, he said, when you go to college, he says, I don't want you to study agriculture. He said, I want you to study something other than that, in case something happens that you can, uh, you will have uh, education in something else if you can't come back and farm. Well, the finals week in my senior year in college, uh, I was headed into the army uh, in a couple of weeks. But he passed away, and that was we didn't have anybody who could operate the farm, and so the farm was we had to liquidate the operation, and um, and so uh, uh, that's why I say he was the smartest man alive because I'm not sure 
if I had studied agriculture, I'm not sure where I would be right now. Maybe, maybe walking bean fields for somebody, somebody else. Because that's all I knew. There's some of that going on again. <laughs> yeah. So um, I had uh, studied broadcasting, and uh, after my military obligation, when I uh, uh, went over, to, got a, my first job was at WITY in Danville. Uh, was uh, hired over there on Labor Day of 1972. Uh, started there. <laughs> and ironically, here 50 years later, I just started working there again. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> but um, after uh, uh, some time in, uh, uh, in Danville, a uh, job opened up in Decatur, which was closer to home. So I went over to work for WSOY Radio and... Uh, Worked there as the farm director for uh, 16 years, and uh, then the station sold, and the uh, new owner, who was from New York, uh, told the local folks that there was no reason uh, to pay anybody just to talk about agriculture, and so I lost my job. Uh, a couple months before that, I had won the uh, American Soybean Association's National Communications Award. <clears throat> and uh, and so I called up my friends at ASA and I said, do you have need for somebody? Yes, we want to talk to you. And I was hired the next day. And um, uh, the day that I started uh, uh, was the first day that the Cedar Rapids Gazette in Iowa used soybean ink uh, to print with. Interesting. And uh, uh, that was in... Um, 1989 and they said okay here's what we want you to do is figure out how to promote that and spread it around the country and so over the next three and a half years that I worked for ASA I'd gotten it uh, to be used in 1700 newspapers and about 5,000 commercial printers Wow! but I didn't go visit all of those there were these ladies who were wives of soybean members who would go to their local newspaper with this little brochure that I created and, and they would say, we want you to use soybean ink. And the newspaper publisher would say, what is soybean ink? And they would say, well, get it from your ink maker. And so all these newspapers were calling the ink makers and saying, we want soybean ink. And the ink maker would say, what's soybean ink? <laughs> And they would say, we don't know, but call this guy in St. Louis. <laughs> so I would say, yes. <laughs> yes, it's, here's, here's what soybean ink is. Um, and we'll give you a little logo that says, contains soybean oil. If you make sure that you replace your petroleum with soybean oil. And so all these ink makers around the country were doing all this research on how you do it. And finally, they came up with, everybody had a different formula, but they replaced their petroleum with soybean oil. And so they had the logo on their container that said, contains soybean oil. And so then the newspapers and the commercial printers would then um, uh, buy that, and then I would give them a little logo that says, printed with soy ink. And so all these newspapers and all these wedding invitations and birthday cards said printed with soy ink, and that's how that's how it uh, <clears throat> all these all these ladies 
they were wives of soybean members. <laughs> That's how it all got started. That is really interesting. That's, cool. I, yeah. that's a neat story. I didn't know you had such a hand in getting that out there like that. And um, then the uh, the uh, uh, the soybean. We got this. I was part of the crew that got the soybean checkoff started. Uh, that was back in the in the late eighties, and uh, uh, got the checkoff going. Uh, and the uh, checkoff board hired an executive director. But for some reason, he thought it was his job to completely replace the American Soybean Association. And so uh, ASA went from a, over 200 employees down to about 20 or 30. Mm. And um, I was one of those that, uh, that eventually uh, left and, and uh, went to work for Illinois Farm Bureau uh, the, uh, a good a friend of mine that I had known from my radio days, uh, Mike Williams, who had been assistant director of agriculture, uh, said he wanted me to come work. He was running, he was really managing the commodities department in Illinois Farm Bureau. And he said, I want you to develop an educational program for farmers, uh, marketing, management, financial management, and all of this. He said, basically, I want you to help farmers make more money and stay out of jail. And so I figured, you know, I've been doing this for 20 years at that point. And, um, and so we did that, uh, got that kind of uh, education everywhere. And then the USDA got involved in risk management. And so I was on a national committee to develop USDA's risk management education program. And that's when uh, uh, they started the risk management agency to oversee what federal crop insurance was doing. And, uh, and so I helped USDA do that. And then University of Illinois Extension hired me away from Farm Bureau to do all the same stuff for them. And uh, I was working out of the office in Decatur where I still lived. And uh, eventually... Uh, the, the fellow who was the unit leader retired, and I took his job. Then the, a really big thing happened. It was a, about an 11-inch rain that happened over, in a, over a farm field in Danville at the same time the Farm Progress Show was going on. <laughs> I and remember that. You remember that. <laughs> that was 2003. And uh, the Tuesday of that week was just a beautiful day. Just sunny, perfect weather. And that night was 11 inches of rain on that 80-acre cornfield. And I, several months later, they were still pulling everything out of that field. But uh, I had written, I was writing a newspaper column for the Herald Review, Decatur Herald Review, every week. And uh, I just tossed out the thought, why couldn't the Farm Progress Show have a permanent facility? And why couldn't it be at Decatur? I was thinking of the fairgrounds. And uh, that uh, morning that that newspaper column appeared, uh, an executive from uh, ADM called me up, and, and he says, I'm not going to tell you who I am, but I recognize his, his voice. <laughs> <clears throat> and he said, you keep that thought, very keep, continue with that thought. Okay? So I called up the Farm Progress Show folks, and I said, uh, uh, how about... How about I have a permanent facility in Decatur? Uh, no way. <laughs> and um, and so I got my uh, a good friend who was then the manager of the uh, Farm Bureau, 
and uh, uh, we and he ended up calling the the Farm Progress Show folks and said, "Would you just come talk to us about it?" And so they came down and uh, had a conversation, and they said, "We are not interested." in a permanent facility and we're not interested in coming to Decatur because if we were there we would lose the the all the folks who come from Iowa we would lose all the folks who come from Indiana and and we just can't do that okay and so we said goodbye well about two months later a fellow from Farm Progress called and he said We've been thinking that maybe a permanent facility somewhere would be good. And if you want to make a proposal, we'll, we'll, we'll listen to your, see your proposal. And so they gave us a date that they would come down and, and visit. What I, uh, they wanted really, if they wanted to keep a, a permanent location in Iowa, and they wanted a, a permanent facility that would draw both Illinois and Indiana audience, and they wanted it at Danville. And so I knew if it was gonna be in Decatur, I had to buy 75 miles of geography between Danville and Decatur. And so my, uh, my colleague, Randy Prince, who was the, the uh, executive director of the Farm Bureau, and I went to agribusinesses all over uh, and got them to make a pledge. We didn't collect money, we just collect pledges. And, and got about $5, or $5 million worth of pledges to build a permanent facility. And, uh, uh, and so Farm Progress staff uh, and executives came to Decatur and uh, we made the presentation. We'll provide a 80-acre permanent facility paved roadways, underground drainage, underground electrical, telephone wires, uh, and uh, security fence. We'll put all that together. We want a contract for 10 shows. No rent. 10 shows, they said. Yes. Yeah. At that point, the deal was, was hmm. washed out. Hmm. They weren't going to give us 10 shows. So we eventually... They didn't want to lose Iowa. They didn't want to lose anywhere else. They really liked the idea, but they didn't want to do the 10 shows. Well, they, they came back later and said, well, um, we, we just, we, we don't know about this. And so they cut off all conversation, all the communication. And I knew where some of the things that they were concerned about, they were concerned about weather. And so I looked at all the weather charts from, uh, uh, for Decatur for the last week in August for the prior, prior 20 years. The heaviest rain was no more than an inch and the average rainfall was only two-tenths of an inch. Hey, rain's not a problem. Well, and they had questioned how much hotel space there was in Decatur. It wasn't that much. And I said, if you go to Springfield, and I thought the fairgrounds would maybe a competitor, <clears throat> I said, you lose all of the champagne Nobody's going to drive from hotels in Champaign all the way to Springfield, and if you go any, if you go to Danville, you're going to lose all the four thousand rooms in Springfield, and so nobody's going to do that. And Decatur was really in the middle of about ten thousand hotel rooms in Champaign, Peoria, Bloomington, and Springfield, and people could drive, mm -hmm. and so pitch that to them. No response. 
Well, finally, it got down to the end of June after they had been there early in May for a visit. And uh, uh, we had gotten uh, a promise of um, a couple million dollars from uh, the state lawmaker uh, who had who uh, was owed a, a deal by then Governor Blagojevich and he was going to cash in on that to pay for the streets so that the streets in in this facility would be state streets, mm. oh. state-owned streets. And uh, got down to the end of June, state budget was, uh, the legislature was about to wrap up, the state budget still needed uh, perfecting, and, um, uh, and so I called um, Farm Progress, and they said, uh, and I said, we need to know. I said, we're going to lose all of the street money if, we, if you don't tell us by Monday. And this was a Friday. And, uh, and finally, Matt Youngman, the, uh, uh, the show manager, uh, he says, okay, we're going to make an announcement Monday and you'll be happy. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> nice. So um, that's uh, that's that's how Progress City happened. Wow. So those are state streets. Yeah. <laughs> interesting. And um, and so uh, we had the interesting part about the whole thing: the property that it's that Progress City sits on. While we were negotiating, uh, it was owned by a California family. ADM wanted to buy it. They'd been trying to buy it for ten years. And we didn't know whether that property was going to be, when it would be sold. So we had to get the, the California family would agree to allow us to put farm, uh, Progress City on their farm. Mm -hmm. Had to get ADM to allow us to put Progress City on their property if somewhere in this process that the, the, the transaction was finalized. So there were some complications there. <laughs> Both of them said yes. We're we're happy with it, and uh, and so that's where that's how Progress City uh, uh, got built. It remains, and and uh, the uh, rental agreement for every other year, uh, alternating with Boone, Iowa, has uh, uh, that that has continued, and it's been re renegotiated twice now with uh, between Richland and ADM, and and uh, everything is uh, that's something that. Uh, I'm happy with. I've got a little bit of claim on uh, how Progress yeah. City and Farm Progress Show got to be there. That's great. That's a great story. And I, and I think, you know, there's some obviously some pros and cons to being on the farm and moving around like they used to. But I think all the farmers that attend and have those nice streets to walk down and you're not slogging through the mud and the, all the infrastructure there, I think, would agree probably that it's been a good move. That's right. Everybody seems to be happy. And... Uh, uh, the exhibitors know the lay of the land. They've got their favorite hotels. Uh, they know exactly what to do. Um, and um, uh, the the local folks who are part of the volunteer crew to, that helps that's so needed, they know what to do. And um, they just wish it was there every year. Um, and so it's it's worked out well. Uh, for everyone, and, and I'm just happy that uh, that it's been that way. I, I just don't want anybody saying, I would rather go back to Danville. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, I, I, I remember that year at Danville because I, I actually I drove out there, I think, the day after the big rain. And, of course, it was right. all closed. Right. You know, I got over there and found out, turn around and go home. <laughs> <laughs> it was a muddy mess. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> so, Stu, you've, yeah, we're, not, we're not up to date yet here to your, your current, what you're doing right now. But oh. you've had a lot of changes over the years. You've had opportunities where... Uh, you know, you got let go or, you know, they went a different direction. So we always ask about advice for students and people in their careers. What kind of advice do you have for people in that situation? Well, um, I've had a very checkered past. (laughs) And um, um, the uh, uh, getting let go at the radio station because this New York guy didn't know about agriculture happened. That happened a second time to me um, uh, just this summer. Um, I had been uh, providing agricultural uh, reports every day for Channel 3 in Champaign. Um, and uh, uh, a, uh, a, a new manager came in and, and uh, he was only going to be there for a few months, he knew. But he said, we've got we've to boost what you're doing and we want you to do this and this. We want you to do more of this. We're going to give you a half hour show and <clears throat> on weekends and we, want, we just want to make sure that everybody knows in central Illinois that Channel 3 is um, the really the signal for agriculture. And then he left, but one of the things he had to do was find a permanent replacement. Well, the permanent replacement comes in and he said, nobody watches your show. The salespeople can't sell any advertising around it. We don't need you anymore. And, um, and so that was very abrupt. So my suggestion to anybody who wants to study communication, make sure that whoever signs your check knows what you are doing, the importance of it. Make sure that some of your fan club communicate with them, whether they are uh, folks who are, um, in this this case, uh, either radio or TV or newspapers or whatever, uh, that either readers listeners or viewers are communicating with the, that, that media entity and that um, the, uh, the people who are buying advertising, whatever it might be, are also communicating with the management to say how well uh, they think you are doing and they're going to continue to, to uh, uh, want to continue to finance your presence there. And uh, that's something that, that I just haven't done. I got shot in the foot twice with it, and I learned at this point. But uh, anyway, uh, um, what I, one thing that I had, had done, I still carry around my TV camera every day. I still do the same thing in interviewing uh, folks. And, uh, but uh, instead of putting those on a TV station, uh, I'm still creating videos that I am providing to Illinois Soybean Association for their website, Illinois Corn Growers for their website, other farm organizations for their websites, uh, whatever it, it might be. And, um, and they're happy to get it because it's almost a little podcast, little video podcast, a couple, two, three minutes long that uh, tells a story. They don't have to worry about their TV station eliminating the farm programming, they can go to 
their farm organization websites and get those same stories. So uh, use your use your connections that you've had. Um, if somebody had given you an award like the Soybean Association did and knows what you can do and you may have a job with them um, uh, or whatever entity it might be, uh, you can always uh, always find somebody that wants you and your efforts in knowing how to communicate. Uh, that's uh, that's something that uh, you you always need to make sure that you've got the, that linkage. And maybe there's a lot more opportunity now in that regard than there was when you started out. <laughs> there's uh, yes, th- there really is, and it's interesting. I belong to an organization called National Association of Farm Broadcasting. Um, I belonged back in the 1980s uh, when I first started, and uh, there were probably uh, uh, 400 farm broadcasters, and uh, that would attend the convention, and maybe 150 um, uh, folks who were from um, uh, agriculture organizations that wanted to be interviewed, and there it's always good to have content, and so. Uh, that was fine. Um, I, in the last convention, which was just a, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we are down now to uh, 180 farm broadcasters, but there were 500 people there wow. wanting to be interviewed that were part of uh, uh, the the uh, uh, the industry support group, <laughs> and so there has been a change from the people who are reporting to the people who are communicating for agriculture and making sure that the messages that, that get out, mm-hmm. um, that their members get what they want from the farm media. And, um, and so uh, instead of uh, watching TV and seeing your farm broadcaster leave, uh, why uh, uh, maybe they are watching or listening to a podcast uh, from uh, say a uh, an agrochemical company that uh, uh, or a uh, a livestock organization uh, that uh, is getting that communication out really may not make a difference on the the job description of who's on either side talking, but just so that information gets out to the producer who needs to be able to make decisions. Uh, about uh, management and staying in, in business. One thing I want to ask is, you've obviously we talked about toward on at the beginning. Some of the changes you've seen over your career, just not maybe not necessarily broadcasting, but just the ag, you know, producing corn, soybean crops over the years. What are some main things change wise that you've seen over your career? Well. Um, the, the main changes, there have been just overwhelming changes in the last couple of years. And when you look at, at now, in a, in a few days, and I'm not sure when people are going to be listening uh, to this, but the middle of December, the Illinois Department of Agriculture is opening a website to give away uh, money for cover crop seed. Mm -hmm. And if you plant cover crops, then you can get a $5 discount per acre on your crop insurance. Well, all of a sudden, such things as cover crops have become something that uh, the people are talking about. 
Now there are some conservation farmers who were using them, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago. Some that got really enthused about it. Some who are scratching their heads and saying this isn't the, the way to go. But I just saw a, a data point the other day that from some organization said that 72% of farmers indicated that they've got at least one field with a cover crop on it. Wow. And now, this, is, this has been an overwhelming trend. Well, I think in some cases it may have been driven by the weather. And when you think about, um, go back 10 years and uh, did anybody talk about climate change? No. If somebody said the climate's changing, they were going to be slapped with a, you're crazy. How can the climate change? Well, all of a sudden, and I, I remember uh, there was a, a fellow who was a uh, kind of a uh, well-known spokesman uh, who worked on the staff of the Illinois Farm Bureau, uh, who said that climate change is, the climate is not changing, and agriculture knows that. Um, he's no longer there. He retired. And, uh, but I have a feeling that nobody that's in his position now would say the same thing because I think most farmers are thinking, you know, something has changed. I'm not sure just exactly why it's changed, but we're getting different sorts of rains, uh, whether we get rain or not, but it's coming in different fashion. And uh, we've had some unusual variations in temperatures. And we see this not only maybe in creeping up from the west into the Corn Belt, but we see it in other countries and where there's things happening. And so whether or not it's happening, uh, or whether or not anybody knows why it is, and whether or not it can be, it's just a long-term cycle, I don't know. I'm not gonna make any, I'm not an authority. I'm sure. not gonna make any decision. But I think farmers are responding in different ways uh, to what they perceive as some change in, in the climate. And so this cover crop thing has certainly come about. Yeah. And, uh, and I think when you, th when you uh, uh, get ready to, uh, uh, to maybe spray herbicide or uh, some crop protectant, um, farmers are all of a sudden thinking, well, uh, for uh, uh, dicamba, we've got I've got 85 degrees, and you know it's getting it's getting warmer. I've got to get this on, or I'm not going to be able to put it on because it's going to be over 85 today. Um, and so I think that that the changes that are in agriculture that we're seeing farmers are either making voluntarily or feel like they are forced to make um, because of this this climate thing and people talking about it and rules being made about it. Well, I think that's that's one of the things that are uh, a major shift that, that we have seen in, in how farmers respond uh, in, in terms of management to agricultural things. Stu, I'm curious about your thoughts thinking back 
you know, <coughs> you were there for the introduction of GM crops. So Roundup Ready beans <coughs> came out and the mid nineties, um, yeah, you right. had been, you know, very well into your career at that point, And they were pretty rapidly adopted by farmers. Oh, really? It was, it was amazing. And when you look at that graph that shows adoption and the first couple of years, it was almost vertical. Mm-hmm. And, and then it got to the point where, uh, it started curving off and, and going up to 95, 98%. Sure. Why, uh, but the first couple of years when people said, hey, I don't have to worry about cutting weeds out of the beans <laughs> and I don't have to worry about uh, different chemicals that I may screw up burning my beans or killing my corn, um, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna do this. This is, this is the easy button. Farming got a whole lot easier overnight. It did, it, it did. That, <laughs> yeah, that, that easy button that you can pound on the table, they all had one and they pounded it. <laughs> so do you think if, if something, I don't know what it would be, I don't have any visibility into that, but if a, if a change like that came out today, would we see that kind of adoption just like that again? I, I think so, okay. because there's... Um, uh, the labor force is not there in agriculture to respond to something that may be labor intensive. And whatever there can be, and we're, we're seeing it in robotics, uh, the robotics are going to replace a lot of folks in agriculture. It may not be in corn and beans, but it's certainly going to be in a lot of the California fruits and nuts and vegetables and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. We see uh, uh, a lot of little vehicles. Um, and uh, in in corn and beans, if uh, uh, it that 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 fifteen year old kid whose boots look a lot like my old ones, um, uh, he may be replaced by a little robot uh, that has it's being developed in a lab at the University of Illinois right now uh, that will find a weed and shoot a a little mist of some herbicide on it. Uh, it goes up and down the rows day and night, mm-hmm. and um, I don't think anybody's quite ready to put a, uh, a driverless tractor on their planter or a driverless combine going through the field. It's going to take a while for that to happen. Uh, but uh, uh, in in scouting things and uh, uh, and, and maybe a, a little bit of weed control here and there, uh, or planting a cover crop in a in a cornfield uh, in the middle of July, why? Yeah, that's that sort of change is probably going to happen. When you consider the future of farming, is there a technology that excites you the most? Well, the the robotic stuff is yeah, and I think it's re- yeah. it, it's exciting because to me it's a black box, and I'm not I'm not sharp enough to know what to put in that black box to make it jump around and roll down the field, and so. Uh, that's that's really fascinating to me, uh, and I get to go over and visit with the, uh, the folks at the U of I who are developing those robots, and I am just amazed at what they can look out and see. They've got a they they've got um, uh, a longer view than I have. Uh, I really can't perceive what's going to be out there. They're looking at it and they're working with it right now and planning for it. And so I'm just amazed at 
at uh, what they're thinking. I'd like to live in their brains <laughs> just to get an idea where we're going to go. <laughs> they might like to live in your brain, though, just to see where we've been, where we've been yeah. you know? I mean, there's a lot of value in that, so. Yeah, I, I, I'm really easy. I, I'll be out in the field and I'll say, it'd be really nice if we could do this. Surely somebody else, could, there's somebody out there that could make this happen. I right. just, Right. You know, I, I have a lot of ideas in my head, but I have no idea how to implement them. So I'm glad there's people out there that are implementing things that's, like that's this. right. Though, and that, and it's fast. It's just, it's just fascinating. Um, and when you when you look at the little robots that that uh, uh, can get lodged between a couple corn stalks and have the smarts to know how to back up and maneuver to get out from there and go on down the row and do their work, um, or the the ones that. Uh, and can go up and and uh, uh, and, and look at a, a, a stalk of corn and know if it needs nitrogen because the stalk of corn has talked to it in some way, shape, or form. If it has changed a color or if it has changed a, a, a moisture level or something, and the stalk of corn talks to a little receiver someplace uh, that says, hey, I need... Uh, uh, I need another little uh, shot of nitrogen here in the next week. That to me is is tomorrow. No, it's next week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is it's so cool to think about some of that stuff. And we, I mean, President and I both, we really enjoyed we really enjoy history and learning about history, and we also enjoy seeing things, you know, where where we've been and where we're going. And so I think yeah. it's a great point about the robots. I think that is robotics are definitely part of the future we'll have to we'll have to see that today's farmers may not be using them but their sons will mm -hmm. and uh, uh, we'll have to see what can be created out there in mass production uh, and somebody can use on a 10,000 acre farm I'm not sure what that's going to look like um, it may be a, a, a aerial robot that can do something I don't know uh, because uh, farms are getting bigger, they're not going to get smaller, and uh, and so uh, the labor probably is not going to be there. But somehow, uh, making an application of something to improve a crop's um, productivity and yield is going to have to be in a uh, in a a major way, and um, and so we'll see how those robots uh, turn into something bigger. I can remember back, uh, and this is probably when I was 10 or 12 years old, seeing a comic strip. And uh, there was a farmer um, uh, in, a, uh, in a cab in a machine that, um, that, that did, this machine did a whole bunch of stuff at the same time. And somebody said, uh, why are you in that machine? And he says, I just like to be near the soil, in the field. Well, he's only <laughs> in the field, near the soil, once a year. <laughs> and uh, and it's gonna, it's, we're going to see a lot of those types of machines that do the same thing. And we're already putting a whole, we're getting bigger tractors. And we're putting a whole bunch of stuff behind them and doing everything at, at once. And... Uh, and so, uh, why do you farm? Well, <laughs> I've got this big machine behind me. <laughs> nice. 
I'm not sure how many nasty letters you're going to get. <laughs> from uh, we, we can all have a little fun. <laughs> well, Sue, you've been very generous with your time. Is there a place people can go to reach you and to take in some of the content you're generating? Um, I do uh, the, the stuff that, uh, that I create. One of the things that I do... Uh, uh, every weekend for the last 25 years, I have put together a, a newsletter uh, called uh, uh, Corn Belt Update. I started it when I was an extension. And uh, this was in uh, uh, the uh, uh, in the late 90s. And the uh, uh, things were kind of rough at, at that time. And so the fellow that I was working for, he said, let's put together a weekly newsletter that uh, uh, for farmers um, that will make them feel better. And so what was neat, uh, I went to the university and got all the research that was being reported on that week that, that was good news mm -hmm. and would put it in this newsletter. And it was two sides of one page. And I'd take it to elevator offices and coffee shops on Friday so that they could hand it out on Monday morning. And that's how it got started uh, in, uh, uh, I think it was, uh, in 98, 98, I believe. And so I started doing that every week. I left Extension and I thought, I can't stop this. I've got all these people needing this. And so um, I ended up uh, getting just some subscribers and uh, that would pay me for my time. And um, right now, uh, I've got only about four dozen paid subscribers, um, but I've got uh, a lot of uh, banks and other entities that want me to brand it for them. Uh, so I do that. And so uh, uh, every week I, I spend about, every weekend I spend somewhere between 30 and 40 hours. It's, it goes from Friday night all around the clock till Monday morning. Um, and writing the newsletter a couple of weeks ago it was 50 pages. I was going to say you're a few more pages now than that front and back. That, that, that's right. And I think that today we're, we're on Monday morning and I finished it up about five o'clock this morning. And I think there's 35 pages in today's. And, um, but anyway, I, I send that out. Uh, I do a, a newspaper column in the Decatur Hill Review uh, that appears every Wednesday. I've done that for 22, 23 years. Um, uh, my Twitter account is Farmgate Media. Um, I'll put things. I used to put a lot on on there. I don't. Um, I have. I'm I'm short on time, and I don't put as much on as I want to. Uh, Illinois Soybean Association uh, has some things. They end up sending it out in an email fashion. So I I don't. You got to be a member, I think, to uh, or at least on their mailing list to get that. Same thing for corn, um, and. Uh, uh, and I do, I, I work at, at well, WITY and put on a five-minute program that they use, run over the noon hour uh, every day, and then an eight-minute program that they run on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And then after the first of the year, they're going to take all of my video stuff. So you'll see it on WITY TV. Uh, but that's, the TV is not really a television station. It's just part of their website. So are you busier now than you were 50 years ago? Yeah, I am. I am. <laughs> 
It sounds you like it. diversifying <laughs> early on in the conversation. It's yeah. funny. Like I think that's another point of advice maybe for students. You're just so diversified, and that's very well, impressive. That, that's right, because if I lose one thing, why, it's not going to destroy my family budget. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, um, but I find more and more people who want my stuff, and that's good. Um, I've got five grandkids that uh, we're paying uh, tuition for, <laughs> daycare for, and so that takes okay. that takes a, a lot of money, and um, and so uh, uh, that. Uh, uh, but but anyway, I'm not sure what I would do if I didn't have these. I would I would shrivel up and just blow away in the dust. I think <laughs> um, this it's what keeps you keeps you young and. Uh, I'll be 75 next March, and so uh, and I have no. Everybody says, "Well, you're retired now." No, I'm sorry. <laughs> last last week I worked 92 hours. <laughs> wow! 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 That's impressive. Yeah. So, well, Stu, I I mean I think the day when you retire, there's going to be a lot of sad people out there because <laughs> you're a very familiar face and voice <laughs> in, in in agriculture in Illinois and beyond over the past 50 years. Well, there's, there's a lot of farmers who still need to know how to make more money and how to stay out of jail. So, <laughs> that hasn't changed. That hasn't changed. Perfect. Well, we'll be sure to link all of those um, look all those places in the show notes of the podcast so folks can log in and find you. I appreciate that. Yeah. Well, we appreciate your time. It's been a pleasure. I've, this has been a delight. When you wanted me to talk about how agriculture has changed and and said, I've got to, you've only got a half an hour to do it. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, there. I, I've, well, just shared a lot that, that kind of changes. And hopefully, if a younger person who wants to get in ag communications, uh, maybe they can, they can see that uh, uh, you've got to have your fingers out in a lot of pies. And uh, you'll always be able to... Uh, uh, lick off uh, some pretty good flavor off of uh, or whatever finger that is in whatever pie. <laughs> yep, Just yep. keep putting your finger in somebody's pie. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has right. been a real honor, Stu. Thanks a lot for your time. I'm delighted. I am honored. Thank you. The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the program hosts or their employer.